is this really my voice? Or is it a deep fake of my voice that I've licensed to somebody else? Of course it isn't. I mean, who would pay for that? But this week on Download This Show, that is now, in fact, a viable option. Also on the show, tech gazillionaire Elon Musk takes on the cryptocurrency Bitcoin, who will win. Everything you need to know about what is changing with WhatsApp and Instagram for kids. What could possibly go wrong? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week from the AFR tech reporter, Natasha Gillizo. Welcome back. Hello. Uh, and Josh Taylor, reporter at The Guardian, joins us in our Victorian studios. Welcome back, Josh. Thank you for having me again. All right, lots to get through this week. There's been such a drive to move people off WhatsApp and onto other services like Signal, and it is contingent somewhat on changes to the WhatsApp app. And if you keep saying WhatsApp app 10 times fast, I'm pretty sure Zuckerberg magically appears. So what exactly are the changes that are coming through, Natasha? So the changes have been touted for months, but basically WhatsApp is changing its sort of privacy and user agreements so that not all of the messages that are sent will be end-to-end encrypted, only personal conversations, but any chats that you might have with businesses on the app won't be end-to-end encrypted, which means that those businesses, but also WhatsApp itself, can access that data, consolidate it, use it, analyze it for targeting ad purposes, all the normal stuff that they do on their other Mm. apps from Insta to Facey, et cetera. Josh, who on earth is WhatsApping a business? (laughs) Well, I think it's, you know, if you look at how businesses communicate with people now, they expect them to be on Facebook. They expect them to have some sort of communications avenue. So it makes sense that they would uh, use something like WhatsApp to potentially talk to their customers. Uh, Whether it actually takes off, I'm not 100% sure. I think we'll need to see how that goes. But it's just sort of the long line of, of Facebook buying out a company, stressing to people when they buy out the company, no, no, we'll keep them completely separate entities. It's going to be all fine. It's it's going to be a separate company. And then, you know, a couple of months or a couple of years in this case later saying, well, actually, we're going to start sharing data with Facebook and, and things like that. So I think it feeds into the relatively high anti-Facebook public sentiment at the moment, um, in particular around a lot of the antitrust issues in the United States in terms of just the size of, of Facebook and, and Google and, and, and things like that. So I think a lot of the concern about what Facebook Facebook is doing with WhatsApp sort of feeds into that a lot. Do you think it will materially change the user experience of WhatsApp users? No? I don't think it will materially change the user experience because at the same time you will have to elect whether or not to, if you want to message a business and engage with the app. I mean, I spoke to some friends about it this week and I was like, what, what do you think? And they are like, no, not WhatsApp, the last bastion of like protected whatever. But they were like... I like that your friends come with an accent. They, they do. <laughs> they, they, they come with characterization, um, really bad year 10 drama um, reenactments. But I feel um, that a lot of them kind of conceded that they could see themselves ordering pizza via WhatsApp within like two weeks. So, but in terms of why messaging, and it's funny, like we were like, who would message a business? Who would do it from an advertiser perspective? I was at a conference the other week and how they think about this is they call our personal messages dark social and they're obsessed with how can we get on dark social? How can we get in people's conversations? So what we share over iMessage, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger is kind of like the last treasure trove of secret private information that advertisers are desperate to knock down that door and get in. So 
They're going to be very excited about these changes. I, mean, I swear, Dark Social sounds like a new bar that's opening that I cannot get into. <laughs> dark Social would be an amazing bar name. It does sound like that, but that's the advertiser's lingo for those message threads. Josh, how much of this at the moment, like the conversation at the moment is just being dominated by a general understandable like anti-Facebook sentiment and how much of it is actually going to have, I think, a material impact on people's privacy moving forward, Josh, do you think? Well, I mean, at the start when these changes were announced, there was sort of a flocking to see and other apps that, that don't sort of do this sort of thing. But I don't think it's going to have a, a major thing. I think it comes down to where are your group chats? If your group chats are in WhatsApp, it's going to be very hard for you to move off them. If, you, if that's how you talk to your family, it's going to be very hard to shift away from them. You, you might be able to personally move yourself onto Signal or something like that, but convenience accounts for a lot. So I, I know so many people who've quit Facebook but keep Messenger, for example, because they need that connection to all their friends and, and things like that. So when you're in the ecosystem, it's really hard to quit it. And and I think that Facebook might be a little bit concerned. They've, they've done a lot of marketing around the changes to WhatsApp, but I think in the long run, uh, I don't think it will have a huge impact, as much as I would love to see people move to Signal. I mean, this is the thing, though. Like, from a functionality standpoint, they're pretty interchangeable. Yeah, totally. I mean, but they're intentionally designed to feel similar. They're not trying to differentiate too much. They want you to feel like if you switch to the other messaging app, it doesn't feel so foreign and different. So that's kind of part of the way that they are designed to kind of be like, oh, we're just like that other petrol station. We're just like that other grocery store, but we get the benefit of you being here. So yeah, I think it's intentional that they look and feel pretty similar. Natasha, with that big sort of much talked about exodus of people off WhatsApp on Signal a few months ago, is there any sense that it it had any impact on WhatsApp? Like, is there any vibe that, that they were uncomfortable, that that was happening back then? WhatsApp stayed pretty quiet for quite a long time about the bad press that has been happening for months around this. The one change actually happened last week where Telegram tweeted on May 14. Telegram is like a signal type app, which also argues that it has encryption in, in the way that its messaging works. Telegram tweeted out a bin meme, which essentially was implying that you should bin WhatsApp. Like that, that, that was what it was saying. And WhatsApp actually tweeted back, and this was their first like coming back at some of this bad press and addressing it head on. And it was that meme and it's that guy whispering creepily into the girls here at the club and she's just looking directly to the camera being like, oh, this guy's such a creep. And the meme that they tweeted back was basically Telegram saying, wait till our users find out that our messages aren't end-to-end encrypted by default. (laughs) So WhatsApp basically, this was interesting, this was them firing shots back at Telegram, I think basically being like, look, we've sat down, we've taken all this like crap from you guys but you guys aren't perfect either and wait until users find out. So I think that they haven't been too worried about material impacts, but also they've got a few shots left to fire against other companies, against other messaging apps, like with this back and forth with Telegram on Twitter last week demonstrate. So they're like, we know how you work. And if you want to talk about what you can and can't do for your users, we'll share that with the public. Josh, what do you reckon the ultimate goal is here with WhatsApp? Like what's the ecosystem they're trying to build for for their users? I think with Facebook, the ultimate thing is to keep relevant and keep people on on their various platforms. I mean, you can see with Facebook that there is a shift away from people using it, particularly like younger generations who default more to sort of group chats and, and Instagram and things like that. So their goal is essentially to keep people on their platforms and try to get people from pivoting away. If they, if they feel like people aren't engaging with businesses on Facebook, that, that will be a downturn in advertising for them. But if they can start getting people to engage with businesses through WhatsApp or Instagram or things like that, then that is another revenue source for them. So I think it's just about keeping 
eyeballs on their apps more than anything else. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Josh Taylor from The Guardian and Natasha Gillazo from the Australian Financial Review. Mark Fennell is my name. And there is a war brewing. I'm building it up. Bear with me. I need the drama. Between Elon Musk and the entire cryptocurrency that is Bitcoin. Josh, now that I've set it up, what exactly is <laughs> the, the fracker between the internet's Favourite controversial tech gazillionaire? I'm going to go with favourite, yeah. (laughs) So last week, Elon Musk announced that Tesla would no longer be accepting Bitcoin as a payment system for Tesla due to the carbon emissions that generated when people mine uh, the cryptocurrency. So it it is an interesting pivot for the company because only in February, the company bought, I think, $1.6 billion of of worth of Bitcoin. So it looked like that they were getting on board with it. But uh, he said to the effect of, you know, it's generating far too much carbon emissions to basically undermine the use of electric cars in the first place. So uh, it's it's something that they're no longer going to accept. There's been some sort of research on, on how much Bitcoin mining consumes in terms of energy. And it's, I think, like there's some research saying that it consumes the same amount of energy as the countries of like Argentina or the Netherlands. So it is a lot of energy for, for what it is. But there is a lot of pushback from people who are Bitcoin aficionados. They say, well, if you look at our current financial systems, they do generate a lot of carbon emissions in terms of offices and banks and everything that's set up like that. So yeah, it, it, it is a brewing war. And, and obviously there's, there's Dogecoin in the background there, which uh, Elon Musk has propped up as well, which is a little bit more, a little bit more energy efficient. I think it's something like, so they reckon the Bitcoin uh, generates 114 terawatts uh, per hour, and then Dogecoin is about 7.8. So it, it's a bit of difference there, but um, that, that's sort of, you know, the war that's brewing in, in terms of cryptocurrency at the moment. Right. So just for background, I guess it's probably worth explaining that um, the way cryptocurrency mm. is developed is it is in effect mined. So you've got a computer solving a very complicated mathematical equation. That's where the energy basically is, so the, the, the computing power. My question is, do we take this on its face value? Do we take Elon Musk at his word that this is why he's come out against it? Or is it is there something else going on here in terms of like, does he have an interest in another cryptocurrency that we should be taking into consideration here? It's a good question, Mark. Look, I more view this through the lens of power and what Elon Musk is like as a leader. He did tweet about Dogecoin yesterday and argued that it was, you know, could be the more sustainable option. So, but I think that's more of a distraction. I think what this suggests about Elon Musk, which is pretty interesting, is it reminds me of this uh, very interesting academic essay I read back in law school, which is about why the worst kind of leaders are the ones who are capricious. So who demonstrate mercy on one day, malice on another day. They're unpredictable. And I think Elon Musk is, uh, despite his entertainment value, if you actually look at how flippant he is on a bunch of different topics and how much he flip-flops back and forth um, in terms of his views, in terms of his direction, while that gives him enormous freedom to move mm. quickly as a leader or as a self-proclaimed techno king, in rule of law land, we'd, we'd look on that a little suspiciously. Before today, I actually texted some of my friends who are very involved in the crypto community and I was like, what does this mean to you? They're like, Elon Musk is dead to the crypto community now. <laughs> um, but they also said, you know, crypto... It feels dem- very West Side Story it, right it now. It does, it <laughs> does. He's dead to the crypto community. But they also said, you know, this demonstrates what we knew along 
song, which is Crypto Has No King. There is no central leader. Oh, you need to write that book. Crypto Has No King. <laughs> Crypto Has No King. And that it's all an about decentralization. It's all about not having these singular figureheads of power, which Elon Musk kind of stepped into the arena and became for a bit because mm. his commentary around it would drive prices up or down. But I think that this will see the crypto community return to this no kings, no emperors, <laughs> no queens mentality to anonymous entrepreneurs behind the scenes doing their crypto thing and leaving behind the the monarchical reign of a few tech uh, leaders. You've watched way too much Game of Thrones is what <laughs> I took you. away from that. <laughs> Thank you. I really want that Game of Thrones music to play over there crypto has no moratorium king. on royalty-based content for you. <laughs> Josh, what do you think? What Should we take Elon Musk's word or is there something else going on here more widely? Feel free to employ as many royalty-based analogies <laughs> I, as you see fit. I don't know how many Game, Game of Thrones references they can get in, but I did think it was interesting. I, I think Natasha's quite right. It was fascinating to see a one-word reply to a tweet that Elon Musk did yesterday, which suggested that Tesla could be offloading its $1.6 billion in Bitcoin, basically caused the value of the cryptocurrency to drop $46,000 in, in a very short amount of time. And my hesitancy with, with all sort of cryptocurrency things is just so, because there's no sort of regulatory surrounding of it, you are basically subject to the whims of, of things like this when, when stuff happens where someone like Elon Musk can, can change the value of the currency very quickly and, and it's it's not really sort of backed by financial institutions and things like that. So that's always my hesitancy with cryptocurrency. And a lot of people say that that is the benefit of it. But yeah, it's just um, one of those things that I, I'm still reluctant to get involved in. It would be interesting to see whether, <laughs> um, are we going to see more companies accepting Bitcoin? Probably. But I think the long-term viability of it, it's still, it still remains to be seen. Download the show is what you're listening to. Mark Fennell is my name. We have Natasha Gillazo from the AFR and Josh Taylor from The Guardian in the studio this week. A number of US states have pushed back against the idea of what I am dubbing Instagram Junior. Mm-hmm. But please, Natasha, explain to me what we're actually talking about. Well, so there was a leaked chat thread from Instagram HQ, which basically implied that the company, which they've come out and confirmed, um, are thinking of developing a separate app called Instagram Kids, Instagram Normal. You need to be 13 or above to make an account. Obviously, people get around that and probably create accounts when they're a little bit younger than that, 11 or 12, say. But Instagram Kids would be a separate app um, with apparently better privacy um, safeguards for uh, 12 and under. Right. And so what exactly is it that the US state's pushing against, Josh? They've essentially said that it's already been proven that social media is detrimental to the health and well-being of children and they're not, you know, equipped to navigate the challenges of having a, a like a social media account. And obviously Facebook has a history littered with issues of um, dealing with child protection on, on their platform. So they're saying what will happen if you are making a an Instagram, which which already has a lot of body image issues associated with it, targeted directly at children, what sort of safeguards are you going to do? And Facebook has basically sort of said that children are already signing up for accounts and lying about their age, um, even though they sort of have detection methods to try and weed those those people out of their platform. But they're saying that by having this specific space for children, they're able to put a lot of parental controls over who can do what. And there's also a lot of limitations on who can message them in terms of like adults messaging children and stuff. So that's sort of designed to um, prevent children from being targeted by predators. It's an interesting point because like, On one hand, I kind of understand the argument that there are kids well outside the terms of service that are using it, and if they're going to use it, you might as well tailor it to them. 
then on the other hand, it's a bit like the Dolomites of social media. It's like <laughs> once they've got an account, well, they're there for life, Natasha. Like, where do you stand on it? Absolutely. I think I firstly have a lot more questions, but the Dolomites example is really good. So from a government point of view, why would lawmakers even step in? It's exactly the CBA Dolomites kind of example where it's like kids are considered a protected class of consumers and it's like legitimate for that kind of paternalism for lawmakers to step in and protect kids against themselves. And that's why it's okay. I have more questions about what they have for Instagram kids. I think the knee-jerk response has been like, oh, no, social media, bad kids. But at the same time, the magazine industry used to make K-Zone for kids. ABC Kids (laughs) makes incredible TV shows Mm. for kids. So there's a lot of other different sectors that service kids as consumers, and I don't think that it's an automatic win or good point to say that Instagram can't step into that arena. I also think you're on incredibly shaky ground when your main argument against something existing is predators. Of course, everybody, like that's a horrific problem and every single Mm. person on the planet wants to protect children against predators. But I think if that's your first argument, it's not necessarily the best argument. So I just have more questions about what they have in mind for the for the app. Would it rely on kids' own user-generated content? I mean, that's almost like a, you know, a kid's going to be uploading their own selfies. Are they going to be DMing random kids around the world? Like, what would it work exactly like that? Or would it be very controlled? Would it just be within their classmates? Would it just be educational content? Those, I just have more questions about how the app would actually look before I think that it's a slam dunk argument to say that it shouldn't go forward. Yeah, so we're talking about a whopping 40 out of the 43 US state attorney generals have signed this letter basically coming out against it. Josh, Attorney General Josh, uh, how do you stand? Where do you stand rather on it? I think that we need to see how it works in practice. So for the longest time, Facebook has refused to realize that first and foremost, it is a moderation company. And by developing an app specifically targeted at kids, you would think that your primary job is moderation. So we need to actually see what they're going to do and how they're going to enforce it before I think we can make a a judgment call on it. I'm sort of skewed by the idea of, I think that having a separate space for children is, if if children are going to be on the platform anyway, which is what they're saying is already happening, then having a specific space with specific controls over them is much better. But I still think overall, it's not a great idea. And the other thing I was thinking of is like, if you grew up with Instagram for kids and then you you know you graduate to the adult platform wouldn't you get sick of it after a while like wouldn't you think oh Instagram that's so old now like why would anyone want to be on there I feel like although Facebook is doing it essentially to um, stay relevant for kids I feel like that you know they're going to find it very boring that you know it's going to be that boring thing that adults do like Facebook (laughs) is for them already so who knows all right Download this show is what you're listening to. And there is now a deep fake audio program where celebrities can generate, or rather they can license an AI-generated voice clip. There's so many things about this that I find fascinating. Josh, explain it to me. Exactly what is this service purporting to do? So essentially the the companies are going to take clips of your voice and, and basically generate a fake version of it that sounds essentially how you would talk in your, your intonations and everything like that. And then you can sell it, license it to other companies. So if you want to have your voice appear on a radio ad that you don't really have time to go record, you can do so, stuff like that. Um, you might want to voice a character in a video game and don't have time to do that, then you can do that. Um, and it can also, I guess, bring a lot of people back from the dead as well, which is a possibility. It's a terrifying possibility for that sort of thing. There's been some mock-ups online already where you can see I think one of the ones I played with was um was Dario the voice of Dario um, that was very fun and it's, it's just super realistic um, and terrifying that it was so close to so close to the reality I can see it being useful for if you wanted to bring back Dario for example and, and say the voice actors aren't really that keen but you know happy to license their voice but 
I guess in terms of the long history of deepfake things, we can see how these things can be misused and, and abused. And, you know, that's something that we need to be on top of, I guess. <laughs> I think the part of it that I find most interesting is actually the licensing component. It's like mm. we've known that deepfakes at the moment are a bit of the, the wild west of the internet where there's a whole bunch of them just being made. People say, oh, what you can do. And then a whole bunch of people making them show how bad it could be. But it's the licensing component I find fascinating because it actually puts a financial structure around it where somebody might benefit. But do you think there'll actually be be take up for this service? Do you think the time-pressed celebrities will actually want it? I didn't buy the argument that came out from the very tone executive that the why why deep faking audio would be so great was that celebrities were time pressed. This would allow them to, you know, use AI to generate their voice and, and they could be spending their time doing bigger and better things. Because actually, I think celebrities want work. They do have time. This is generally not an issue for singers, actors, media personalities that they're time poor. They want work. Um, and if their voice is their talent, then they want to be paid for that. There's a University of Sydney professor called Mark Seymour, and he does a lot of research into deepfakes. And he is very much kind of of the view that it's about getting people comfortable with the idea. It's about talking about the pros and cons, that it's coming. You know, we're going to have to learn to live with it, so let's get used to it. But on the other hand, I had a really interesting conversation with a venture capitalist the other day, Ash Fontana. He's an Australian guy who lives in Silicon Valley, who's back at the moment. And he's been investing in AI for a long time. And I asked Ash, okay, you've been in this game for a while. Where do you think a, where do you stand on where AI is good and where do you stand on where you think it is not so good? And he sort of said, I'm very suspicious of any type of AI that attempts to simulate social interactions, that attempts to simulate human connection or that tries to shape our taste preferences. So mm. he's very against like the Netflix algorithm, but he's also quite <laughs> against investing in things that pretend to be your friend or reflect for reflect a person where he's okay with it being used as making warehouse processes more efficient or That's processes as being more efficient that save time and money, but still free us up as humans to be curious and connect with one another. So he's definitely not investing in this. <laughs> he wouldn't invest in Veritone. No, he wouldn't invest in Veritone. So you've got Mark Seymour on the one hand, the UCID professor who says it's just about getting used to it and being comfortable. And you've got Ash Fontana on the other hand. I don't want to suggest that this would be their final viewpoint, who is so, regards this as a problem that we shouldn't get used to AI simulating human beings. What about you, Josh? Do you think there is a market for it? Oh, I was thinking the other day, I was listening to a podcast where um, one of the um, people who played the um, young child in The Incredibles had sort of talked about how he'd been bullied during high school because he was that character and everyone associated his voice with that. But then when they made The Incredibles 2, they recast his role because his voice had broken and obviously changed and things like that. And sort of grappling with the, the loss of the identity associated with that. Mm. Um, it, it's kind of interesting that if you if you had enough samples of, of his voice before it deepened and, and broke you could go, probably go back and, and revoice it using you know using this technology but at the same time would you want to do that because then you're denying the the actor who replaced him the job it's, it's one of those things i guess you have to carefully balance when you're doing this sort of stuff do you know i realized that hi i'm ed sheeran and you're listening to nova sydney's favorite <laughs> oh yes that stuff that sort of thing is it's the boring like one of the things that always gets said to me about automation and technology. It's the boring, repetitive stuff that people want to replace first. And I reckon yeah. things like that might go. But I think as with all these kinds of technologies, once you know it exists as a technology, suddenly all these like applications become apparent that you wouldn't totally. have used before. And I think I have a suspicion that the mere fact that they can own it and monetize it means it's going to have some kind of market. Whereas if that doesn't exist, then it exists in this like legal gray area where people can buy it 
but it's unclear who's making the money from it at the end. I, I don't know. Like I can kind of see where the market for it lies. It's also like there can be things that you don't even expect. I was talking about this with my friend Camille and Camille, she gave the example of using deep fake visual of yourself um, and she said basically 30% of retail items that are bought online are actually returned and that's a huge environmental cost, right? There's the packaging, there's the um, CO2 from the truck getting to you. But they've proven in, in studies that if online it's a deep fake of you and you dress up that in the leotard or little whatever, like a little mark, don't know why you're wearing a leotard for this case study, you know but let's roll with it. Respect. Let's roll with it. Creative choice. You're actually more likely to back your choice and feel comfortable with your choice in terms of what you've ordered off the iconic or David Jones or whatever. And that resulted in less returns overall. So it's kind of an interesting idea where you're like, that's a really simple example of deep fakes being not in the audio space, not in the veritone hmm. space, but in the visual space, solving for a problem, which is people return so much of the crap they buy online. <laughs> it's like absurd. And it's absurdly higher than how much they return when they buy it from a bricks and mortar store. So these little quirky applications that solve real problems that you know are good and ethical to solve do crop up with AI and in the deep fake kind of space. Um, and I'm sure there'd be those kind of things for veritone as well. I also think that as much as I was saying earlier, the thing about repetitive, I also think something that could uh, adapt dynamically, like so video games, right? If you've got a bunch of basketball players that have licensed their voice into a video game, it means that the video game can, instead of them having to record a whole bunch of like previous good shot, you know, sort of lines, you can actually let the technology do some mm -hmm. of the, the heavy lifting there to re react dynamically. And I could, you know, folding in your name as a player, you know, good shot. Natasha, you know, like stuff like that could be quite interesting. That could be fun. And already, I mean, like with FIFA and, you know, NBA, they're already constantly using technology to further the lifespan of these players and squeeze more out of them <laughs> um, because these uh, these guys want to... To go back to the time point, they actually gen genuinely only do have so many hours in the day. So tech has always been used to squeeze more out of people that people want to be close to. I think the thing that might get lost in a lot of this is that I think the nature of celebrity is changing quite a bit and, and now it is, it's a lot more personal. I feel like people want to have, feel like they have a personal connection to the celebrity that they're, they're interested in. You know, they want to get a cameo or they want to have, have a tweet with them or something like that. And, and I think that if they know that celebrities are just licensing their voice and it's an AI that's talking to them, they might feel a little bit disconnected from it. So that might be the downside to it. Who do you think this absolutely doesn't work for, Josh? Yeah, I think probably Instagram influencers or, um, <laughs> you know, uh, singers are probably, you know, singers probably don't want to license it because they want to sing it for themselves. So I think that's probably the, the two ones I can think of off the top of my head. It is a bit of an affront to the, like, the concept of authenticity, right? Like, you know, you see the rise of things like Cameo, yeah. where you get a famous person to like, give a birthday message to your third uncle's cousins, whatever. <laughs> like that whole thing really works on this idea of like, oh my God, you actually got the real person. Mm. And it kind of further decimates that concept of like an authentic interaction with somebody terribly famous, potentially, Natasha. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think? No, that's my biggest concern. And the biggest thing, you know, I think as we go through life, there's always that interplay between us wanting intimacy and independence. And we always pendulum back and forth between those two things. But human connection and genuine connection is the salve to so many of, you know, it's an antidote against depression. It's um, gives us hope in times that we need. So when you say who doesn't this work for, I would say 
Humans. <laughs> humans. Yeah, humans where like where their connection needs aren't met. If your connection needs are fully met and you have a sense of community and you have good friends, maybe maybe a partner that you love or a family member or two that you're close to or many sure, what's an AI audio overlay in a podcast that you're listening to going to detract from that. But if you don't have those connection needs met and you're turning to technology, then yeah, I am concerned. So everybody needs a group hug. I knew eventually we'd have an episode of, of Download the Show that would end with the desperate need for a group hug. That is all we've got time for. Natasha Gilzo from the AFR, thank you so much for coming back on Download the Show. Thank you. Such a contemplative and reflective <laughs> session today. I mean, normally we end up with like, oh, Facebook did something horrendous. The end. We're done. <laughs> or it's the end of the world and it surely has no choice but to end in an apocalypse. I will take this. I absolutely. Will absolutely. We'll take this wrap up. Yeah. Josh Taylor from The Guardian, it was lovely to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. And was it actually me or was it a deep fake we'll never know see I love a good mystery (laughs) you gave us a special cliffhanger at the end of the show and I appreciate that Josh thank you so much and if you enjoyed the show make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to encounter us on and with that I shall leave you my name has been Mark Fennell and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show